After successive version suicides were followed, Sofia Coppola drew inspiration from her father filming, filming a real Santori whiskey commercial with Kira Kurosawa in the 1970s. It's here she crafted a tale that only was a love letter to Tokyo, but also one of two lost souls in a city where neither of them can speak the language, while at the same time generally confounded by the world around them, leaving them to dwell just on their personal issues. Certainly it's hardly the sort of film that you would expect to be turned to a huge hit for Coppola, not only with critics but more surprisingly with the general movie going audience who for some reason really warmed to the film. I'm Elwood and you're listening to Movies and Tea. Let's take it to the booth. Once again, you're again listening to season three of Movies and Tea, and tonight we're going to be talking about Lost in Translation from 2003, uh, the second film from the season's featured director, Sofia Coppola. And for myself, at least, this is certainly one of my favorite films, and certainly if you go into my letterbox and look in the top four slots, it's got pride of place in one of those slots there. It's up there with Destroy All Monsters and Ghost World and Freaks and... I said it's uh, this film, and I think I'm right in saying for yourself, Kim, it's kind of like a polar reaction, and for yourself, this film sort of like more falls into that list of films that you describe what the cat's done on the carpet, like, wow, Pickles just left a giant Jupiter rising on the carpet, and or I just uh, <laughs> I just stood in a stood in a pile of Skyfall, but uh, What's uh, your sort of general feelings on Lost in Translation? I mean, was this a film that you were sort of eager to sort of revisit, or was it one that you were sort of like, oh, I kind of really don't want to be revisiting this at all? I don't know. I, me and Sofia Coppola have a weird relationship, I think. Because the first time, I think it's just the general idea is that her movies are really deep. And same for, you know, Virgin Suicides. I talked about how, you know, Rewatching it kind of gave me a new appreciation for it. So I think Lost in Translation is kind of the same thing where I think because I put a lot more focus on, you know, the little details and the little things that, you know, Coppola does with her films and whatnot and, you know, gave it a second chance, I guess. I definitely appreciated Lost in Translation um, a lot more the second time around. Um... But I still feel like, you know, Lost in Translation is like, I think the best way is like, it's like a chapter in someone's life where you meet someone memorable, but it's kind of like, you know, there's that quote about how people like, you know, walk through your life and some people only are in just like one part or something. I don't know the quote exactly, but like, but you know, see, like, I feel like that that's the thing is that 
their friendship might not be long lasting, but for that week or whatever in their life, it was like a memorable companion for both of them. I definitely understand what you're saying. I mean, obviously, we've got two people here at very opposite ends of the spectrum to each other. You've got Bill Murray here, who's the aging actor Bob Harris, who's flying out to Tokyo. He's being paid $2 million to film this whiskey commercial. And he's very much at the stage where his star's kind of faded. He's no longer really making movies anymore. And his main sort of concerns are coming from his wife of how he wants his office decorated and the fact he's missing his son's birthday to come out to Tokyo to film this commercial. Um, the other side of things, you've always got Sophia Coppola's Charlotte, who's just recently graduated college, and she's in Tokyo with her husband, John, uh, who's played by Giovanni Rubishi, and he's a photographer who's on assignment, and he's so caught up in his work that he just really has no sort of time for her at all and she's sort of left into the hotel room and she's kind of bored and spends her days like looking out the window and you know decorating the hotel room with pretty pink flowers and uh you know doing very sort of minor things like makeup and casual smoking it's it's this very sort of mundane sort of life she's leading and all her friends sort of seem to have things worked out they're either having like kids or they've got they've got their sort of work life planned out but she's sort of left education and now is at this sort of crossroads of like well what's next i mean i've got married and everything should be going forward but i'm still sort of like stuck not knowing what to do and it's i'd say it's just for this chance meeting that they have that they sort of not only form this friendship um but also in many ways sort of come to find able to sort of work through their problems together um it's like he's able to help solve her problems and she's able to help solve his problems it's it's a very sort of interesting and beautiful friendship they have yeah i you know i think the charm of lost in translation is really in these two characters because if you think a little deeper about it like i was watching this and i think at the end of it what i felt like was that the opposites of them kind of grounded both of them but at the same time they were kind of like a comforting thought for each other that or maybe not i guess because it was kind of like um they were a lot a lot of times like a mirror of each other because while you know bob harris has a lot of success and he's gone through life and he's he has this like long marriage and kids and and all that stuff his life is still you know his life has really slowed down to he's at the point where, you know, what is next? You know, is it just this boredom that keeps continuing on where he has to do these absurd ads which he doesn't even understand what they really want? And then he's getting paid a monumental amount of money and he's away from his family who also doesn't seem to care if he's there or not. Whereas, like, you know, Charlotte has that same problem where she's out of school and she doesn't really know what she wants. She has kind of, I guess, a rather... You know, she has kind of like those philosophy majors, which is really, you know, you don't know what you do next. <laughs> you either become a professor or you do something else, right, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to be like disrespectful of people with philosophy majors. I've never looked into the major myself, so I don't know what the next path is. <laughs> it but... feels like a very limited field. It's great when you're at, at uh, university because you can, you know, you can impress people with your ever so deep thoughts. But when you get into the real world, it's not like we have a huge amount of call for philosophy majors in the real world. It's yeah, it's not something you can see yourself really sort of applying to anything. 
Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, she's at that point where, you know, she feels very alone because she didn't, not only is, you know, Bob Harris actually has some place in, in life where he is at, but Charlotte left New York to go to L.A. into a city, and I'm guessing a crowd that she doesn't quite enjoy because, you know, as as her husband, you know, John says, she's really snotty about the whole thing. So she, you know, she doesn't seem to appreciate and, and really enjoy the company that her husband has. But that's the circle that she's stuck in because of, you know, the fact that she has nothing to do and she has to rely on her husband now. Um, so, you know, she's, she's kind of at that crossroad where, you know, where does she go from here? And, you know, and I feel like a part of her kind of questions, like, where her marriage is as well, because, you know, it's so young and, and, you know, is, it seems like she loves her husband, but there's something that's, you know, not right. Definitely so. And I mean, certainly this film is, is a very personal film too. Couple as a whole. I mean, not only does it have this little love letter to Tokyo where she, but she spends a lot of time um, and just really wanted to make a film about film in the city. But at the same time, there's comparisons that can be drawn to her, her own life. The fact that this character John is uh, seemingly based on her ex-husband Spike Jones, who she married um, um, shortly after the release of Virgin Suicides. I mean, both of them had huge hits. Um, and we're just sort of the defining figures of the American independent scene. Like she obviously did veteran suicides. He did being John Malkovich and really at this sort of point, he's gone on and he's like, does this indirect in demand sort of like music video director. And he's like constantly away. And you get, as I said, this is apparently the feeling that we, we get in the so many elements of Spike Jones is shown through the character of Jones. Um, in particular, when he has the meeting with Kelly, um, here played by Anna Faris, who's yeah. apparently supposed to be a representation of Cameron Diaz, who, uh, if, we're, if we're led to believe the rumours, was quite a code to Coppola when they had a meeting after the release of um, Bin John Malkovich. Mm-hmm. And um, so this was apparently a <laughs> came back to it by having this Diaz-style character who's just sort of like this airhead blonde who just has these really stupid press conferences and apparently can't sing well. So... <laughs> no, Anna Faris is, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I've seen a few of Anna Faris's role. I, I feel like she's one of those actresses which, you know, she she's more... Pre- Let me just say, I, I appreciate, I guess, her comedy every once in a while. Um, yeah. In, in some cases. I think, I think it was... Um, What's Your Number was my favorite movie of hers. Uh, and I don't think... And everything else feels a little kind of fallen to the thing. Like, her role feels kind of... I don't know. I don't know what was the purpose of it. <laughs> other than other than to prove that, you know, John hangs out with very stupid people. And it's to oh, prove definitely. the point that, you know, maybe John doesn't see it, but... You know, Charlotte is right when, you know, she's she feels this way about the people in this circle. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Is it a, a commentary about the people in the in the movie world or or the general? I don't know. I don't know what it's trying to do there. Um, but yeah, it's... no, I mean, <laughs> 
Oh, it definitely feels like it feels like, and it's certainly not going to be the first time that we're seeing her making this comment on Hollywood, um, and certainly certainly celebrity. But I just love it when she's giving the conference there, and she's basically describing yeah. the plot of the Matrix. It's sort of like, oh yeah, Keanu Reeves plays this Jesus-like figure who dies and then is resurrected. And it's like he's just yeah. describing the plot of the Matrix. Yeah. But and it's then it's like these really banal details. It's sort of like, oh yeah, we go on so well. It's like we both have two dogs and we both like yoga, and it's like, yeah. <laughs> and she plays it so perfectly. And this is what I love about Anna Faris. It's like, yeah. yeah, she's like supposed to be this dumb airhead sort but of she does, character. But that kind of is her bread and butter. It, yeah. it sounds really weird, but I think Anna Faris is. You know, she's not like that in real life. But no, no. What, because when you hear her like in interviews and stuff, she doesn't seem like she's that way. Uh, but like, you know, as a comedian, those are the roles she really falls in. She really embraces that, you know, you know, dumb blonde thing. And she rides on that blonde thing that she has. Um, and like, she kind of mocks, she mocks it herself, you know? And, and that's, that's, I feel like that's how she enjoys that sort of character. Yeah. And certainly when you see how, like, how John interacts with her mm. and certainly the earlier conversation where he's talking about um film film with this band and like the label want them to be like like a more sort of like uh sort of like rock band with like the levers and stuff and he's like no they're just like these nerdy guys it's like why can't i just shoot people as they are um it would be so much better and you get this feeling that he's more willing to sort of conform and and you know please people where you know charlotte she's like well why do i have to sort of please people why can't people just accept me for me um, if I want to make this sort of like joke and, and question who Kelly's using as her alias because she uses a, apparently like a male name um, as a as an alias while she's hiding out in this hotel and the f- fact Charlotte points out seemingly as a joke but John's like why do you have to be like so so bitchy <laughs> it's yeah. like not everyone can be no, not everybody went to Yale so mm-hmm. so yeah I certainly I certainly appreciate those the, those sort of elements to her character, and as I said, with when she meets like Bob, it's there's never this sort of like feeling of like oh you've got to you've got to change who you are to to uh, be friends with this person. You know, you can just be yourself. You can be because you know I I feel like I feel like that's what their relationship that you know their friendship is really good because I can't really call it a relationship, um, but I think that that's where their friendship is really good is that. Bob Harris, you know, going to Tokyo, the only people he knows going there is, you know, that warm welcome, all these foreign faces coming to him and then trying to organize these things for him that he doesn't want. Like, you know, some weird lady bombarding his room. (laughs) And then, you know, and then, you know, you, you see this, this girl who, you know, like he makes a good point is that the first time he sees her is when... You know, through all these, you know, Japanese faces, there is one lady in the elevator that smiles at him randomly. And that, you know, really gives him that, you know, friendly feeling where it's like, you know, it feels genuine, I guess, to him. And and it feels more normal. It's like he kind of can, you know, even when they're hanging out and she invites him to go out and with his friends, with her friends and whatnot. It feels like, you know, he enjoys the fact that he's talking to a bunch of people who are normal, who really just are just everyday people doing everyday things. You know, they're they're you know, they have all kinds of trades from like surfers to, you know, and then they do like all kinds of, you know, like um, they do like everything from bars to karaoke and they just have a lot of fun. And 
it's it's like you know despite having that much time they still you know they still find you know comfort in each other obviously when you know they take moments to sit outside in the quiet and whatnot oh definitely so it's she provides a sort of entry point into this world because obviously she has friends through John um, in this world where uh, people like Charlie Brown, mm-hmm. who's who's actually uh, Sophia Coppola's tour guide in real life, um, which I thought was really funny. It's uh, he's played by Fumiro um, Hiyashi, but uh, yeah, he's apparently real. He's uh, best friends with Sophia Coppola in real life, so that's another sort of real life things that she ties in here. But yeah, I love that. As I said, they just originally sort of like find this bond just through just general just want people wanting to be themselves like um as you said she it's just like a chance meeting the elevator and then again they meet in like the piano lounge where he's kind of taking the piss out of the lounge singer by pretending he's like in a jazz bar he's there like clicking fingers and they're having this little joke across the room which i think is just uh very cool and it's from there that this friendship builds he takes her out and she's uh takes him out in the town and introduces him to people and it's through together that they then start to appreciate the world um, around them. Where she, before she's like, she's happy to go out into the world, but she feels nothing because she feels this sort of like continual mm. sense of loneliness. Like she goes to the shrine and she's like going through Tokyo and like uh, seeing all these really interesting sort of sights and and that. And it just nothing is resonating with her. She's she's just so caught up in her own loneliness and isolation that, as she said, she just feels like numb and that she feels that she should be feeling something um and obviously when she meets bob she suddenly like starts like appreciating this world around and it's like so finally i have like this friend um to just go on this like this jailbreak um as he puts it with so they just can go go out and have fun in the city and go to karaoke bars and uh get chased by crazy bb gun welding bar owners (laughs) that part was pretty funny (laughs) Um, yeah, that was that was surprised me. Like the two scenes that people really, when people like talking when this film came out, and people wanted to talk, people like uh, talking about the film. There was like two scenes that they were talking about. The first was obviously Charlie Brown singing "God Save the Queen," mm-hmm. um, and the other was the opening shot, which is um, inspired by the painting "Jutter" by John Cassery whose work frequently depicted laundry clad clad women and he painted like a very photorealistic stone you can actually see the painting that the opening draws its inspiration from it's in the hotel lobby as well um but yeah it, it that opening shot of Scarlett Johansson's backside as we fade in the titles it's an interesting opening I, I don't know if you felt that it was gratuitous at all or I, I don't yeah, I don't have much, you know, specific feelings about it, I guess. <laughs> it was also a shot that uh, Sophia Coppola actually did the first take herself, wearing mm-hmm. the same underwear, so good for her. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I think it was just more for for, for Coppola's, uh, for, the, for herself, really. I mean, she's obviously mm-hmm. a fan of painting and art because it's what she studied before she went into photography and mm-hmm. ultimately... Um, ultimately filmmaking so i can understand her you know you've got this attractive young lauren bacall type and why why not try and recreate this painting even if the rest of the world thinks you're just putting something rather gratuitous in so yeah just talking about you know the the loneliness part of these two characters you know what i really like about it is i think that 
in that, you know, week that they spend together, what happens between these two characters in the end? I think, you know, in that ending scene when we don't really see what they're talking to each other about, you know, who, uh, what, you know, Bob Harris whispers to Charlotte. I think in the end is just, I feel like because they went on this, you know, adventure together and they kind of like worked out some of their issues together that I feel like both of them kind of embraced their loneliness a little bit more. I think it's, to me, it felt like it was a bit of a commentary a little on, you know, how people dwell on loneliness itself because, um, you know, there's, you know, there, there's different types of, you know, relationships in, in, in life. And a lot of times, like how I feel at least about relationships is that, you need to be comfortable in your loneliness before you can be with someone. And it feels like Charlotte went into a relationship. Like, she got married, and she hasn't embraced herself yet. She hasn't, like, sorted herself out yet. And now she's jumped into this. And I feel like, you know, Bob Harris really, like, in that process of the week, really gave her that sort of, like, um, kind of, I guess, just settled her a little bit on, you know, her thoughts and, you know, not really knowing where to go and you know that kind of idea yeah um it's i mean i hate it when people say that, that i mean it, i know a lot of people like to say that oh it's like a, a romantic film but it's really not it's just a film about friendship yeah um it's not a romantic connection that we see between between bob and charlotte i mean they're yeah. they're just two people sort of hanging out and the the kiss that they show at the end it never feels like it's got a sort of romantic connection. I mean, the whole end sequence was completely ad-libbed and it drove people like absolutely nuts as they tried to figure out what was actually said at the end. And it's one of the few sort of mysteries that I've, I've never really felt needed to be solved. I mean, exactly. certainly when you look at, when you start going through and you translate all the Japanese sequences, uh, there's some really, really funny sequences in there, which are just uh, sort of like funny. Again, it's like having these hidden like... Um, Hidden little treasures to discover, like when he's filming um, the the commercial at the start, and he's got the director who's speaking to him in Japanese, and his translators like relaying information back to him. And he's like, "Is is that it?" <laughs> um, and you you actually look up what he's actually saying. It's 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 really quite funny because um, I mean, just to obviously break it down, we go up to the opening open a bit and he's like uh the translation is very important okay the translation and the interpreters yes of course i understand and then the director's as he's talking to bob he's like mr bob you're sitting quietly in your study and there's bullets and tory whiskey on the table you understand right with wholehearted feeling slowly look at the camera tenderly as though you're meeting old friends say the words as though you're bogey in casablanca saying here's looking at you kid centauri time and of course, we never get that from the translation because she cuts it down into like, just like look at camera and <laughs> say line, um, and you wonder why he this director's going like nuts. That he's like, wow, is he like just like this really fussy and overly particular director? But like, no, he's got his vision, but he's Bob's just not getting told what it is. <laughs> um, the same as when we got the old guy in the hospital, and um, the old guy's actually asking Bob how long he's been in Japan, but. Bob seems he thinks he's talking about the camera or the file system that's uh, going around and you can see in the background the the old, the uh, two women who are just cracking up which makes me think the whole scene was just another ablib scene because uh, it's so funny just like seeing these women cracking up because they clearly understand what this guy is saying and Bob just has no idea whatsoever but he's there trying to hold polite conversation <laughs> 
Yeah. No, the, the, there's a lot. Of, I think that, you know, the the joy in it is that, you know, the movie is called Lost in Translation, right? So yeah. there's a deliberate, there there's it's deliberate that these things aren't translated and it's left to the trans translator and, you know, for our interpretation. So it, it's, you know, so when you look further into it, obviously, you know, we know that the director's probably gone way deeper into, you know, what he wants. But then, you know, you have that sort of concept of, you know, translators doing that. And I find that, I, I find that that happens a lot in real life, too, especially since I'm coming out of Fantasia right now. Yeah. And, you know, I just came out of Fantasia and there's a good bit of, you know, foreign films. Obviously, I don't understand Korean, but when we were doing the Hong Kong film, I, there were things I found that when the translator was saying things, there were things I was like, I could do this so much better. <laughs> and then I was like, I, I understand what he's saying, but then at the same time, I feel like the translation gets a bit, you know, mixed up in it. Like, oh, it's all the so. word choice, right? And like, and obviously, in this case, you know, for Lost in Translation, um, the the translate we know that it's like such a big difference, right? That it, it becomes such a funny scene because Bob Harris knows something's not right, and the woman just gives him like you know super like bare bones of what needs to be done. So you know, it feels like you know he's trying to be professional, but he can't. Oh, definitely. I mean, I know from my own sort of experience, like working in Japan and stuff, and and you you do get these bare sort of bones. You and Japanese being one of those sort of languages where it's so sort of spaced out and stuff, you do wonder it's like, oh, am I getting all the information here? <laughs> um, and I mean, this even translates into like the Tokyo's when we like look at um, when we look at some of the the to uh the titles here i mean like in the spanish it's uh Perodos and tokyo and in chinese i'm going to really butcher this but i think it's mission dongjing uh both which translates as lost in tokyo mm-hmm. so even the title gets lost in translation when it goes over to other can- uh, countries but i kind of appreciated that and it's also a nice comparison that you can see in later scenes like when he should do in the photo sequence how he sort of starts to relax and, and go into the world and he starts to, you know, he connects with the general people. He's sort of like having the conversation with the photographer about uh, how he wants to him to pose and he's like going through the rap pack and he's being being James Bond and they have this conversation about Roger Moore and um, and Sean Connery as who, who their Bond is. Um, even though the language is sort of very straight strain between them, you can see that Bob's like, you know, he's starting to warm up to this situation that he's in. And uh, yeah, I just, I mean, uh, the photography, the, the, when he's having the photos taken, I just really like that, that scene where he's like, um, trying to, trying to understand the instructions. It's sort of like hold glass to face. It's like, I don't have it. <laughs> I don't have the glass that close to my face. And usually, but, um, or and he's like, when he's like doing Dino impressions or, uh, Frank Sinatra impressions, it's, yeah. it's, as I said, it's just Bill Murray just being given free reign to just like, you know, he's been given bare bones instruction and when you look at the script there's a lot of scenes where it's all like very bare bones sort of set up and they just give it to people, uh, give it to them and it's like, you know, just do what you feel's right in this. And I think when you've got someone like Bill Murray who can ab lib like that, and certainly with in a comedic uh, sense, it's it's just so perfect. And you can understand why Coppola was so determined to have Bill Murray for the role. I mean, she was ready to just walk away from the project if he hadn't signed on. And we're still at in '99. He'd 
left his talent agency and he set up an automated voicemail. Mm-hmm. So the only way that you could you can hire him is by phoning this voice this voicemail number. And she managed to get the number off Wes Anderson, who he frequently worked with, and she basically bombarded his voicemail with like over two hundred messages trying to get a phone call meeting with him and even then it was sort of like just a verbal agreement there was no contract signed so a week before filming to start she had no idea if he was going to turn up or not and it was just basically reassurance where's anderson that you know he bill murray's a man of his words and he will turn up and when you look at the behind the scenes footage he's like so He's, he's, as I said, he's so chilled out and relaxed and just really seems to relish working with Coppola. And I mean, he even refers to him, again, in the bonus material as like being his director. And you can understand why this was like one of his favorite films of all time. Yes, it's a complete departure from what we've seen him before. I mean, it's only his second real sort of dramatic role. But it's kind of nice to see him do something more restrained, something more more dramatic. And here when he gets all free reign to do the comedy stuff it's just really great um and just even when it's just just conversation between himself and charlotte about just minor things such as like uh when they go to the, like uh the restaurant where they're expected to cook their own food or they talk about shiatsu massage it's just the fl- the flow of the conversation is so natural and i think that's what really sort of appeals to it and what Certainly when you look at a lot of films which followed and tried to replicate it, certainly films like the Mumblecore style, where they tried to this natural conversation, it just never worked. Um, it just sort of makes this film all the more special, really. Now, how the city city shot, I mean, we obviously have to talk a bit about the cinematography here, because the cinematography is really stunning, and it's done by Lance Accord, who uh, previously worked with Coppola on Virgin Suicide, and he would go into Marianne Trinette as well. And, I mean, he's really a key cinematographer for a lot of the the guys and girls coming up in the sort of indie scene at the time. I mean, he worked with Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris on their music videos. I mean, they would obviously go on to do Little Miss Sunshine. He worked with Mark Romanak uh, for One Hour Photo. And, I mean, he worked with Spike Jones as well and Michelle Gondry. So here's a guy who's, like, basically, I say, responsible for a lot of the visual style of the American independent scene of the early 2000s. All those sort of, like, great movies when we talk about House and the Look and here there's so many sequences like if we're, if we're going for the city or like when we got the nightclub scene where they uh were where they're projecting imagery onto these giant weather balloons in the club everything just looks so cool even though tokyo is like this magical place already he just seems to manages to make it look even more cool yeah for sure i mean i really i really like you know how the scenes of japan and like of tokyo were shot um in between, I guess, in in between each of the the pieces that you know uh, how it transitions from one place to the next and whatnot. I mean, you have it from you know obviously from like the skyline, and we have a lot of like uh, above shots of like of like you know um, just uh, Tokyo in the day and Tokyo at night and all the lights that are going. And then at the same time, you also have you know. Um, scenes of you know charlotte by the big window all the time she's sitting and you can see like the view that she gets um from there as well because you know tokyo is a is a really beautiful city i would say and and there's you know a lot of lights it's very similar to to new york of you know in some shots of of different movies tokyo is kind of reminiscent of like times square in new york and i feel that in in some ways if you think about the link between it like 
would would Charlotte feel, you know, the same way if she saw the city that way? Where this is kind of like, you know, yeah, she's in a foreign place, but you also have that, you know, concept of all these lights and all this bustling people in the middle of the night. Yeah. It's still very much, you know, the city that she grew up in, just in a different country. Definitely so. I think it's, it's, it's as I said, I think the fact that uh, she's in a, because she's in a foreign land, I mean, she doesn't speak Japanese. Mm-hmm. So I think that sort of adds to the isolation, whereas obviously if she was back in New York, I mean, there's people she can go and see because people aren't particularly hundreds and hundreds of miles away from her. Yeah. And there's people she can obviously go and see and connect, and there's places that she can like get that familiarity with whereas here in tokyo everything's sort of like new and <laughs> new and sort of unique really yeah. um and I, I mean as i said i love it when she goes exploring out and see i mean there's there's lots of like nerdy little things i really like like when she goes to the arcade and um yeah. you see all like the games and stuff and it's like oh wow taco no touching which is like the big drum game oh, yeah and she's like playing guitar freaks by Kenori, and, and you've got like the cool little punk punk guy there um that was a really random scene to be honest but it it somehow it fitted really well because she went in there and it felt like this there was this like colorful world outside of the outside of her hotel when she that she goes to see right and and you know she seems to be enjoying more of the wonder around her as the movie goes along definitely so and it's there's so many slight shots in that and it's like Coppola's like doing a photo shoot for something like ID or you know like one of those sort of fashion sort of magazines and she instead of like using um, a, cam- a, a, a camera she's using film to do it so you have these like shots of like the guy playing on the video game and a, like of his girlfriend and just like uh, as we're going through like, the city, and I was so great the fact that they went to an arcade of, other than just like a pachinko sort of um, house, which would which is obviously featured because we see it when they're running away from the bar they run through through there. And normally yeah. when we see um, sort of Japan, it's always pachinko because obviously it's a huge game over there. I still don't understand how to play it, but um, as I said, the fact they went to an old school arcade is just like it fills us with that that warm glow. And it may just be the fact we're just video game freaks, and you know. <laughs> <laughs> any any time they have like something video game related in a movie it's always exciting to us but um yeah i love it as i said i love all the little the little bits of culture that we see whether we're going to shrines or we're going for the through like uh crosswalks or even just like when you've got like the political campaign there's the grand pass and like the minibus um just these these little slice of life is just as important as the conversations that that um charlotte and bob are having and the fact that she they only really have sort of like one falling out and that's when he accidentally sleeps with the lounge singer and it i don't know really how did you sort of feel about that sort of scene i mean did you think that she was being too sort of possessive of a friend and sort of sort of like oh this this person's intruding on on this thing we had this is going against the deal we had you going off and having this one night stand with the uh the woman who sings in the bar I don't know if it's being possessive or the fact that I guess that she judges him a little because I think she finds kind of an anchor in him. Like he's he kind of is, you know, like, yeah, he's not doesn't have a great marriage, but he's still very loyal to his wife, um, you know, despite the distance and all that. And I, I think in that way, she she respects him because of, you know, 
you know, the fact that, you know, they share a very similar, you know, they, they share a very similar kind of, I guess, marriage in that sense. And, and they share a very similar personality and likes and dislikes. And to her, I guess it, it, it feels, she feels a bit betrayed maybe. Yeah. Um, that, you know, she was kind of relying on him. And I think it's a mesh of both of those things that, um, maybe it's, like she's enjoying the attention of you know having someone with her and now she feels like this companionship is breaking apart because i mean the next scene we have is obviously them at that that restaurant and the fact that they had this really awkward lunch and it's only it's really thanks to like, sort of like a fire drill and you kind of wonder if she she pulled the alarm just so that she would have a chance to have this to reconnect and when they reconnect it's no like big apology it's just sort of like the only thing they that they apologize for is just the lunch and is and bob's like i can't believe that place made us cook our own lunch um <laughs> and i thought that was really nice it's like no one's no one wants to like has to take fault it's sort of like you know this is a situation that happened and we're moving on from it and you know we use this awful lunch as our connecting point and i thought that was kind of that was kind of sweet because i mean you do have friends like that where you fall out for whatever reason and when you when you meet up again you just you just move on you don't have to have this big oh i was wrong or you were yeah. wrong or, you just yeah. you just get on with it i think i think that you know sometimes the best friendships are like that is that you don't feel comfortable with each other and you kind of walk away and then you come back and there it's not a fault of anybody you you just look past it and you keep going on and being friends and that i think that really shows the the i guess the solidity of their friendship um and i think that that's really nice because you know this is this happens you know more near the end of the week that they're together and mm. it it's you know it's interesting to see that i think that you know sometimes when movies show these kind of friendships that build in 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 movies on short spans of time together it is true in slices of life where these things happen. And it feels very genuine because it's like, you know, they become really good friends. And, and you can really see that because they found, you know, a way to look past all these things as well. I love as well just um, just how the, how the film sort of shot. There's no real big moments, no big dramatic moments in this. There's no huge sort of like plot points. And it, it made it a real interesting film when you're trying to describe it or sell it to someone. Um, especially, I, I took my friend to go and um, Helen to go and see it, and it's all like you're trying to describe this this film that you're going to go and see, and it doesn't sound like it's going to be the most interesting film at all. It sounds like you know it's just some standard sort of drama fare at best, uh, which made it all the more surprising. It just went on to become this huge sort of like hit, both both culturally and and with sort of like moviegoers, and. As you said, when you watch it, it's not really a film that anything really happens. You know, it's just two people having conversations and going to interesting places. And that's it. There's no big dramatic moments or anything like that at all. And um, as I said, it just feels like a very satisfying film experience. And I, I, I was worried, like, coming back to it, because it's been a while since I've seen it, that, you know, something might have changed that, you know, my movie taste may have, like... Uh, different now so i i come back to it and it wouldn't be the movie that i remember it as being that was always the big concern so i was kind of <laughs> glad that it was so no lost in translation definitely you know holds up i uh, granted i didn't see it too long ago from now maybe like 
maybe like three, four years ago I saw it. Yeah. For the first time. So, I mean, for me going back to it, it was, it was you know, it's, it's nice because, you know, this is a, you know, 2003 film. And, you know, we're talking about now we're like, what, six, uh, 16 years down the road and it still translates well. And I think that it's, it really works because I think it really shows something like, because it's about two people. It's about a friendship and it's about these things where, you know, it's, it, it doesn't change over time. You know, like over time, friendships are friendships. They don't really change too much. Trips are trips, and Tokyo is Tokyo. Yes, technology changes and all that thing, all that stuff. But I think when you, you know, drop it down to a level like, you know, just looking at human to human interaction, the longevity and rewatchability of a film is so much more than something that's you know fancy and flashy and full of you know CGI and full of <laughs> effects and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, that's the charm of, you know, to me, that's the charm of Coppola films, at least, you know, from the two that we've seen. Yeah. Is, yes, there is, you know, a depth to it. And and it sometimes feels like, I think, both with Virgin Suicides and this one, there's kind of like that really, like, you know, just a slot in your life, something happens, and then it becomes a memorable moment or a, a memorable time. So yeah. it it's it's nice to see film still being on that kind of like lower scale, and I think that you know because of that, you know Coppola really embraces that, um, you know that kind of more indie side of doing films, uh, you know smaller scales and that sort of stuff where you know you don't have to you know you can appreciate her for for doing that. Definitely so, and I have to also appreciate the fact she shoots the film she shot it on film rather than digital because her father was like you know digital's the future and she was like no i'm gonna i'm gonna shoot this on film and i think it definitely pays off if this was on digital it would not look as pretty as it looks now and especially when you're doing hair sort of trademarks which i said it's not we've said before it's like natural lighting and you have shots of light through trees and just like moments when you're like looking out of uh, the window charlotte's she's just looking over the city in the daytime and stuff if that was in digital it looks so horrible whereas mm film has this warmth and as when we're out in the city i mean it's everything has this sort of like warmth to it it doesn't feel have this unreal quality to it because tokyo as it is the city is feels unreal enough as it is because you know it's all this bright lights and this future sort of tech meeting with traditional custom um it's just this weird blending pot and to shoot it on with any sort of anything that's going to take you out of that it's just really not going to work so the fact you shoot it on film and it just oh, even now it still looks lovely i love I love things shot on film anyway, uh, rather than digital. Mm. And I understand, obviously, with digital you have more flexibility, but I think here the extra effort to shoot it on film just really sort of pays off, and I think that's why we're still obviously talking about the film now, just on a visual sort of stance. Um, it's, it's just still uh, looks as nice as it does now. So on to further viewing. I mean, obviously, this is a, a unique film, like all Coppola movies, so not the easiest uh, film to sort of pair with, but... Um, I mean, did, do you think of anything that you would want to pair it with Tolkien or? Um, I originally, I, I, you know, for me, I think, you know, we talked about this off air and I was talking about how that was the hardest part of this film for yeah. me. Um, so 
my first thought when I first thought about it was American Beauty. But then I didn't feel too comfortable about it. So I moved on. <laughs> and then I thought about a um I thought about a little film that I saw last year, uh, which I doubt got a wide release anyways, because it's a foreign film, and I saw it at the Festival of uh, New Cinema in Montreal, um, called Tourism. And I remembered when I told you about Tourism, uh, you brought up Lost in Translation <laughs> right away, because it was those films where you tell people, and then they're kind of like, huh? How is that interesting, you know? Yeah. Um, so what tourism is, is um, tourism is a film about two girls who win free tickets, free plane tickets to go anywhere in the world. And um, she, you know, these two girls, they they decide on, you know, randomly choosing a place on the map. And then they kind of like shoot darts or something. And then they like they go on these three things and you see the whole process of them choosing and they ended up going to Singapore. Um, both of them don't have good language skills. They don't know English. They don't speak. Singapore also speaks Chinese. They don't speak Chinese. Um, so there's there are two Japanese girls going to this foreign city with their phones and pretty much you watch their adventure as, you know, a spontaneous two people. And then they end up splitting because Someone, someone goes back to look for something and then they split up and then they can't find each other and then one of them loses their phone. So you see them meet different people in that process. You know, you see, actually you follow one of them as she goes and she finds all these people and she follows them around and she starts seeing all this culture from, I think, just, you know, meeting everyday people who take them around, you know, to different places. And on one hand, it feels very scary because you're kind of thinking about, you know, that worry that these people are going to meet, you know, the wrong people. But at the same time, it's kind of like that moment of traveling when you get to, like, when you just get to, um, you know, I think it's like a story very relatable to Lost in Translation, where it's just seeing the culture from the eyes of a foreigner. It's, yeah, it definitely ties into many of the things that we, we see here. Uh, definitely, the... The idea of travel and new cultures that are obviously so radically different to our own. So, and more so if you don't speak the language, because I think that's always a an easy way out. If you speak the language, you you've got that sort of connection point already. It's like when you go to place in Europe, and a lot of places in Europe they speak English already. So you you just go and speak in English, and you kind of don't get the full experience if you go out there and you you try to muddle your way for the language and stuff. So. Mm. The first one would be the film that many people see as the, uh, the sort of companion piece to this film, and that's Spike Jonze's Hair. Um, this is basically can be described as Siri, the movie, where we've got this uh, guy played by Jack, uh, Joaquin Phoenix who is trying to go for a breakup, and he kind of falls in love with his phone, <laughs> um, in particular the Siri device, and he, he forms this very unique relationship um with the ai device and it's a really interesting sort of like um commentary on on how we have this relationship with our technology the fact that it it, it we have we form this sort of like relationship with it and this is sort of like taking it to that extreme where you know you form a more emotional um sort of connection with your phone or or whatever and um yeah a lot of people see it sort of like see it as an interesting companion piece to Lost in Translation, Lost in Translation being the breakdown of um, 
of a relationship and obviously with her we've got the dealing with the aftermath so the break up um mm. and i think it's a film film that i think we're going to discuss it at some point in the show because i think it definitely deserves to be looked a bit deeper um both films won best original screenplay at the oscars so they have that connection as well as sophia um sorry as well as scott johansson appearing in both um mm. She obviously provides the voice of this air, and obviously she plays Charlotte in Lost in Translation. So it's uh, kind of interesting the fact that we got these two directors who essentially making making films to deal with a situation, and they both managed to win the same award, and they both have the same actress in both. So it's an interesting connection between the two, even if it's hard to say how intentional uh, any of it was. But certainly the two make an interesting. I don't know. I, I dare say a double feature. But uh, certainly, there's a there feels like a, there's a link between the two. Um, if you want to see more of Bill Murray in, in doing sort of a similar sort of dramatic role, I would che- recommend checking out Jim Jamoose's 2005's Broken Fleece. Um, plays this guy who receives a letter from an ex-girlfriend saying that he has a son, and he sets off on this cross-country search to find this son. He revisits all his ex ex-girlfriends and. Uh, along the way has these sort of interesting sort of encounters it's not as good as lost in translation certainly in that terms of like that free form sort of like dialogue but it has some certainly interesting moments and uh some great uh supporting cast including sharon stone and her very appropriately named daughter lolita um the last one i would recommend would be in the mood for love from 2000 um this is a film that we actually rated our second uh, best film of all time, all from the Asian Cinema Film Club, falling just behind Battle Royale for that number one spot. But it's uh, directed by Wong Kai Wah, who, I, if you're not familiar with, he's kind of like a an art house director and could be very much put in the same sort of category as the likes of, like Coppola and um, just for his sort of like world view. And he's again, I don't I don't know if you've got a lot of experience with his films, Tolkien, or he's someone you sort of dip in now. I, I, I have a very... Com- I, I, I would say that I would agree with you that he's in the same camp as Coppola because I feel the same way about his, his films that, as I feel about Coppola so far. So, you know, I mean, I'm not, you know... Well, he, he He's okay, you know. He, he makes very artsy films and sometimes yeah. they're a bit too much for me. So I have a very, like, I saw, I think, 2046 is by him. And I, I, I had a... I have... A very sour taste from that movie right now so and it's been many years so i haven't really gone back to yeah i mean 24 6 is the follow-up to, to this film and in many ways i like to call this film his sci-fi movie because it stars maggie chung and tony uh long as these two people who are sort of thrown together because their spouses are having an affair with each other so they're sort of like drawn together and they they form this unique friendship and as i said i call it the sci-fi movie because nobody's going to cheat on maggie chung this woman, she falls into that that uh, <laughs> goddess sort of camp of Asian actresses who get white boys <laughs> flustered. Um, but Maggie Chung looks absolutely stunning, and the whole film itself is just just stunning yes. from start to finish. Again, it's a film that's really hard to re- sort of recommend because it doesn't sound that interesting, and certainly the title itself gives this sort of like um, misleading impression that it's going to be like, oh, it's this sweeping romance because it's really not. It's just you know these two people thrown together through a very unique circumstance and finding this friendship and it's oh it's just a sumptuously shot movie and just 
just oh, absolutely perfect and um one that i'd highly recommend checking out but yeah he's um Wonko was a very a director i sort of dip in and out of rather than say oh i've got to watch everything he's made because uh <laughs> so yeah that might take a he while. makes films i really <laughs> like and other films that um i sort of have to take a couple of cracks at like chunking express i think it took me two attempts to get that movie um that was in my cinema shame pile for so long and then i like watched it again recently for again for asian cinema film club and now just like oh now i finally get this movie but um yeah those are my recommendations uh for you to go and check out there um now before we go we have got a little bit of mailbag um to go through um first off we're gonna give a shout out to the Vern over at cinema recall who has said really it's just been really positive about this season he's been very excited the fact we're talking about sophia coppola who he's said is like one of his favorite directors even more than her father so thank you uh Vern. we're glad you appreciate uh our pick for the season and also thank you for sharing your your top picks for your favourite uh, Sofia Coppola movies. Uh, very surprisingly, having Marianne Trinette as number one, which I would have thought would have been way down at the bottom, but apparently, like Jackie Brown and uh, Halloween 3, it's had this re-evaluation now where people are sort of like, uh, really sort of liking that movie for whatever reason. So it's going to time very nicely to next week when that's obviously the film we're going to be looking at. Um, I also have to uh, say congratulations to Kim, who made a Lambcast debut this week. So you were talking about Hobbs and Shaw, so really comparable to this film. <laughs> that was a real break <laughs> from uh, from everything. Yeah, no, I mean the I, I you know I've you, the only connection I have with the lamb is you know from you know this podcast. You know, it's kind of a shaming shameful thing because I've never even like I've been too lazy to sign up for my own blog which yeah. i've been doing for so many years and yet you know you being the <laughs> responsible person between the two of us <laughs> in this podcast you want to sign us up um yeah so no, no it was a lot of fun um you know hobbs and shaw has about you know so much that you can talk about and it you know it was a very tangent filled podcast um but that also made it really fun because everybody felt like they wanted to talk about that more than Hobbs and Shaw um you know I'm gonna have my thoughts on it on that go up on you know tranquil dreams later on but uh no it was it was a lot of fun you know we I think we all in in general felt the same way about it um although you might not feel that way if you looked at the (laughs) rankings that we gave at the end I guess (laughs) I guess it were just some of us are more forgiving than others. Um, yeah, yeah, I, really, I really enjoyed the uh, episode. So well done, Kim. It's, uh, it's a welcome to the, the Lamb family. I mean, obviously been part of the large-ass movie blogs for a while and now bringing uh, movies and tea over. So it's uh, it's great that you obviously get to hang out with, with Jay and those guys. Because, I mean, the Lamb cast itself, is, I think, has launched more shows than Helen and Troy launched ships. So it's... Uh, it's sort of, for many people it proved this sort of starting point you go on the lamb and then you sort of get the itch it's all like oh i could i could make my own show and then you go off and you make your own podcast <laughs> jade's like provides this sort of like uh 
this launch pad for so many people they go on they do a couple of episodes of the landcast and they get get the itch to go and start their own project so i think he's responsible for a lot of uh what's out there in the out there in the podcast sphere so but um yeah if you've uh, not checked out definitely go and check out the landcast they have a new show every week and obviously uh the new episode that's out on hobson shore you get to uh hear my co-host kim talk about hobson children and some other exciting things as well because it's it's a real packed show and fail miserably on <laughs> trivia. Yes. Um, and you get to hear Jay also. Question that Jaws 2 isn't as good as Deep Blue Sea. Really? <laughs> he has to, you know, if he actually does that show. <laughs> we'll we'll get him on here when we do Jaws 2. I'm, I, I'll turn him around. <laughs> we'll have words <laughs> myself and Mr. Cluett, that's for sure. Um, But next, um, next episode, um, Kim, do you want to introduce where we're going next yeah next episode we're doing Vern's favorite Coppola film uh Mary Antoinette uh from 2006 uh you know a bit of a, a bit of a biography historical story um set in France obviously so uh it'll be nice you know starring the you know going back to Kirsten Dunst that you know kicked off uh so Coppola's feature film in in Virgin Suicide. So it'll be nice to see how this one goes. I've never seen it. So, um, from, you know, I guess it's, it, I guess here's a good point to, to go that and, you know, keep in mind is that from this point on, I haven't seen any other Coppola films. So everything from this point on is new. Yeah. It's uh, one I'm certainly looking forward to revisit. It's a very sumptuous short film. And yeah, I think there's going to be a lot to talk about in terms of both cinematography and general food porn for this one so it's going to be a very interesting discussion indeed but thank you as always for listening and uh thank you to my host kim and uh if you haven't done already please do a heads up on social media if it's facebook or twitter or instagram um we uh, appreciate all your support there and you can also see interesting bits and pieces that we post up as well um you can also check out our blog which is moves and tea uh, .wordpress.com where we have our complete archive you can check out our previous two seasons on Paul W.S. Anson and Guillermo del Toro uh, we also post reviews and uh, we've got the film school up on there where we talk about the themes and ideas for that our directors uh, that have been featured like to explore so lots of uh, great stuff on there and you know you can also uh, get in touch with us on any of those platforms and uh, let us know your favourite uh, couple of movies or any Thing that you would like to see discussed in the show we'd love to hear from you as always but uh, until next time thank you for listening and uh, we'll be back next time talking about marianne trinette good night <laughs>